Assuming you looked at the schedule, I'm not on it. But I have been given the privilege of introducing the speaker, Christy Gambrell, my daughter. Um, one of the greatest concerns I've had for my children is first they would trust in Jesus and secondly love his word. And I'm thankful for God's grace in my daughter's life. After graduating from Covenant, she worked at the college for a time. Then she and her husband both attended Covenant Seminary where she earned a master's in exegetical theology and another master's in counseling. Since that time, they have lived in the Orlando area where she is the director of women's ministries at Orangewood Presbyterian Church. Would you please welcome Christy? Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, wow. Responsive. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Covenant's been a part of my life for a long time. Grew up around the school, went to the school, worked at the school, just about everything you can do at the school. So it's a pleasure to be back here with you this morning. So I grew up in the church, and when you grow up in the church, you hear a lot of Christianese, a lot of Christian phrases get thrown around. And one of the messages you often hear when things are challenging or difficult or in a time of transition is just trust God. Just trust God and you will have peace. And you hear story after story of, I just gave it to God. And the way that people talk about this, the tone in their voice is like, now I just float around on these ice cream dream clouds of contentment all the time. And it was not until I was maybe a senior in college that I realized that I was not the only one who struggled to trust God. And that came to my attention when I was telling my older brother, like it was this big unique confession that only I had ever had trouble with this. I just think that the hardest thing for me is that it is really hard for me to trust God. And he looked at me and goes, Christy, that is the struggle of the Christian life. And it's your older brother, so you don't want to seem like an idiot. And I was like, right? Mm. <laughs> so true. So true. But once you have ears to hear, you kind of hear it everywhere. And I noticed that a lot of people say about various areas of their life, I have trouble trusting God with this. I have trouble trusting God with that. And the way that we talk about it sounds like, I have trouble trusting God. The problem is with me. But what we usually mean is, mm, the problem's with him. I don't know that he's trustworthy enough for this area of my life. We're not convinced of his trustworthiness. And I think this is because the main way that we get our definition of trustworthy that we use for almost everything else in life is what we would define as a trustworthy car. I don't know how many of you have used cars. We have always had used cars. We bought, my husband and I, our first used car, the first time we'd ever bought a used car. So we'd always been given them or had hand-me-downs. So this summer we talked a lot about what do we want in a car. And we ended up deciding, well, we want everything that's the opposite of our other car. Our other car, which we still own, when we went to uh, go buy this new car to us, we said, how much will we get for trade-in value on this car? And the dealer said, $100. <laughs> and we said, maybe we'll keep that car. That car is a 96 Volvo wagon, and it leaks just about every kind of fluid you can leak and still run. For a while, we kept extra bottles, not bottle, bottles of oil in the back seat so we could just dump some in when the oil fell out. Um, the lining on the inside of the car droops so much that when you get in, you have to check and make sure you can see out the rearview mirror. You can't drive with the windows down too fast because all that is disintegrated up there in the roof and it'll cover you. It has this certain smell that no matter what you do, you can't get rid of. 
and the timing belt could go, the brakes could go, just about anything could go at any time. It's not a trustworthy car, and we don't trust it within more than like a 10-mile radius of our house. It has left us stranded before, and it's not dependable at all. It's not predictable. We never know what will go next. It could be the brakes. It could be the timing belt. It could be the AC. It could be oil spitting up on the front of the hood like it did one time. We just don't know. We can't make a plan for it, and it's not controllable. So when we look for a new car, we look for everything that was the opposite of that, and that's what we ended up getting. Something we could depend on, something that we could understand, something that we can make a plan for. And this is how we tend to define trustworthy for most things in our lives. And it's how we expect God to be, too. I want a God who acts in predictable ways, at predictable times, in predictable situations. And I want him to fulfill my expectations when I have them and how I think they should be fulfilled. But shocker, God does not work that way, despite my best efforts. So is he still trustworthy if he doesn't fit the definition we have for almost every area of life of what is trustworthy? Can we still trust him? This morning, we're going to look at Exodus 1 and 2, and we're going to see that even though God doesn't fit this definition of trustworthy, that he's something much better. The first couple chapters of Exodus teach us three things about how God works, and they're all things we wouldn't expect and often don't appreciate, and they are these. God works long before we see the effects, long before we're aware of it. He works in impossible situations, and he works in completely unpredictable ways. And these three things remind us he's so much more than trustworthy. So before I read the passage, a little bit of background to Exodus. The events of Exodus take place roughly about 400 years after the end of Genesis. So at the end of Genesis, we leave with the Israelites all hunky-dory in Egypt. They're there under Joseph, who's reigning right under Pharaoh, and everything's good, and then Joseph dies, and then about, about 400 years pass, and then Exodus starts. And as I read the passage, think about how is God talked about in this passage. All right, so we're going to start, if you are following along, chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. 
and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman who took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So you may have noticed, God's not really talked about in this passage. He's mentioned really briefly in reference to the midwives that they feared him and then he rewarded them for their righteous actions. But he seems kind of totally absent from what's going on. The people are being oppressed, all this bad stuff is happening, and God's not doing anything. And yet, and yet, all these things just happen to fall into place. All these miraculous things are going on. And the writer of Exodus is inviting us to see God's work and his trustworthiness are very sneaky, and they're very behind the scenes. So the first way we see that is that God is working long before the Hebrews see the effects. God works long before we have any idea of it. At the beginning of the book, what do things look like from the Hebrews' perspective? This is about 400 years after the events of Genesis, 400 years of relative quiet between God and his people. This new guy became Pharaoh, and their lives are terrible. And those promises made to the patriarchs 400 years ago probably seem like a really distant memory. If you look at the language that Moses uses to describe their situation, it's not good in chapter 1. He says they have taskmasters over them who are purposely afflicting them with heavy burdens. They are oppressed. The word ruthlessly is used twice in verses 13 and 14. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And in the middle is sandwiched this phrase, their lives were bitter with hard service. This is the reality of their lives, intentionally ruthless, difficult, heavy labor, your whole life long, with no hope of anything else. And basically the message to them is, we will use you however we please. Oh, and if that's not enough, not only will we use you however we please while you're alive, that's if you make it to adulthood, because the baby boys are being targeted for mass genocide. And the Hebrew people don't know. They don't know that the period of 400 years is almost up, that the clock has slowly begun, wait, the clock goes this way, slowly begun to tick to when they will be delivered. We breeze through reading this and we're like, oh yeah, Moses gets born, then he comes back, and it takes us about two minutes to read 80 years of Moses' life. And we don't think about the fact that they had no idea when Moses was born. They had no idea when this was going to be over. On the day that Moses is born in the midst of great oppression, nothing changed. There was no magic ripple when he popped out that, all, that went to all the Hebrew people and they all went, ooh, a savior has been born this day. They had no idea. Moses is even hidden away. Maybe his neighbors didn't even know a baby boy had been born. As far as they're concerned, nothing has happened. As far as they know, they've been left alone and God is nowhere to be seen. And no one knows that with this baby boy, God has quietly begun his plan of exodus that will lead hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery. All they know is one more day of ruthless hardship, fearing for the lives of their sons of oppression. And this is how God often works. This is very similar to the day that Gabriel came and announced to Mary, 
you will have the Savior of the world. The world just keeps on spinning. No one knew. Or when people saw her traveling towards Bethlehem, no one knew that that particular pregnant woman held the answer to the world's problems in her swollen belly. No idea. Or just days or weeks later, when Joseph hands her her newborn son, baby Jesus, how many people knew? A few shepherds, maybe a few wise men. That was it. The keeper of all hope, love, joy, who would fix the entire world had been born, and no one knew. We think, if I don't know about it, things aren't happening. I simply don't believe God can or will do anything because I don't see it happening right now. But we follow a God who's very aware of our situations and of the situations of our loved ones. In the very next passage, just a few verses down, in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read this. During those many days, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for slavery rose up to God. And listen to God's response. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Those four verbs, he heard, remembered, saw, and knew. He's not ignorant of our situations, and we cannot know how or what he is doing or even when he is doing it. God starts working long before we have any clue, long before we see the effects, long before we even think to ask him for what is going on in our lives. He's already started working on it. Just because you don't see it does not mean God is not at work. Second, we see that God works in impossible situations. If your hope for God to work relies in assessing the viability of the situation around you, you will be sorely misled. Because Exodus 1 shows us that God actually really likes to work in completely impossible, ridiculous situations. Remember that the Israelites are not just being oppressed, although that that would be bad enough. They're also having this target, they're being targeted for all the baby boys to be killed. But even before that starts, In verse 12, when Pharaoh says, let's try to lessen their numbers a little bit so they're not so much of a threat to us, it says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. You would expect that sentence to read, the more they were oppressed, they survived. And instead it says, the more they were oppressed, they thrived. They went everywhere. So then Pharaoh goes to plan B, which is kill the baby boys. And this is kind of a genius plan. Well, evil genius but a genius plan. When is a woman most vulnerable? I mean, I myself have not given birth, but I hear you're not really up for fighting a battle for the life of your child five seconds after you push it out. A woman is pretty vulnerable right after she gives birth. Well, what about the baby? Can he defend himself? He's literally just learning how to use his lungs. Not going to be a lot of help there. That's when you strike. There's no one else in the room. The midwife has all the power. That's when you kill the baby boy. How could God possibly preserve his people when they're being targeted like this? And out of nowhere, God raises up these two midwives, courageous enough to defy the ruler of the land and deliver the baby boys. And during this time, Moses is born, and they don't know, maybe, that their righteous actions are what deliver the deliverer to one day come back for them. In an impossible situation, two women's courage changes everything. Because think about the message of kill the baby boys, but let the girls live. What's Pharaoh saying there? The baby boys are a threat. They're the ones who grow up to become warriors and will hurt us in some way. The women, eh, let them live. Not so much a threat to us. And who is it that God raises up to deliver his people, these two women, in an impossible situation? 
God spectacularly still works to protect his people and provide a deliverer. We tend to decide what's possible based on our own imaginations. And I have a pretty good imagination, but it's not that good. And we say things in our lives about, I can't imagine God working in my family, or I can't imagine him saving that person, or I can't imagine being led to a place where I get to use my gifts, or I can't imagine him delivering me from this sin, or working in the areas of my deepest fears, and so it goes. But you are not the arbiter of what is possible. You are not the arbiter of what is possible. Is it possible for two women to stand up to the ruler of the known world and single-handedly thwart him, defend those who are powerless, and change the course of history? Is it possible that God would want to send his son to die for the sins of a people who have time and time again rebelled against him, turned their back on him? Is it possible that in Jesus' death, when he was murdered on a cross, that God's plan of salvation would actually go forwards and he would conquer death by death itself? He can not only work in impossible circumstances, it is his specialty. God is not only at work long before we know about it, he also works in what look to us to be impossible situations. Third, God works in completely unpredictable ways. This is my favorite one because it is straight up nuts in the passage. Could you possibly have predicted what happens in these two chapters? Moses' mother is so desperate to protect him, that she says, you, my three-month-old baby son, will be safer in a basket by yourself on the river than you will be with me. That's how bad the situation is. I mean, have you seen a three-month-old baby? No offense to three-month-old babies, but they're not even interesting. They're just blobs of humans. Like, they don't do anything. He's all by himself. It's a hopeless situation. But it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter not a high-ranking official's daughter, not a really clever Egyptian woman, but Pharaoh's own daughter shows up at that exact same spot in the Nile River. Huh. And she sees the basket, and she opens it up, she figures out what's going on, and she has compassion on the baby. What are the odds? And not only that, Miriam, Moses' sister, a little girl, has enough courage to approach the woman whose father has ordered the murder of not only her own brother, but all the baby boys of her nationality. She has enough courage to approach this woman and say, hey, you need someone to nurse that baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, I do. And then she says, great, I'll go get someone for you. And she gets Moses' own mother. And so on the same day that Moses' mother is so desperate that she puts the three-month baby in this basket by himself because that will keep him safer than with her, she receives him back with the full protection of Pharaoh's household. And on top of it, she's getting paid to raise him. Ask any parent ever if someone offered to pay them to raise their own child. Does not happen. You can't make this stuff up. It's completely crazy. It's completely unpredictable. If you looked at the raw materials God had to work with, so to speak, and said, I see what's going to happen here. I totally see where this is going. You would never be able to do that. You would never be able to predict how God ends up working in this situation. We say God can't work in this situation because I don't see him doing so right now. God can't work in this situation because it's too hard. It's just too much. It's too exhausting. It's too overwhelming. God can't work in this situation because there's no discernible ways forward. 
I can't see how it could work out. And instead of remembering that this is who God is and that he works long before we know about it in impossible situations, in totally unpredictable ways, when we feel fear or we have trouble trusting, we tend to throw some of those Christianese sayings around. We tend to throw them at each other. All things work together for the good of those who love him, so cheer up. God won't give you more than you can handle. He'll show you what he has for you. He'll make it clear. These are the things we fall back on instead of remembering who God is. And are they even true? If these are the statements we rely on to help us trust a little more, instead of remembering who God is as portrayed in Exodus 1 and 2 and all throughout Scripture, are they true or are they false? All things work together for the good of those who love him. Okay, don't freak out. I know this is from Romans 8:28. I'm not going to say it's not true. <laughs> it is definitely true. Of course this is true. But not often the way that we use it. If you look at what our good is in context of Romans 8, it is not our happiness. It is not our ease of life. It is not our fulfillment. It is our sanctification. In other words, Paul is saying in that passage, There is not one thing that happens to you, not one thing that will ever, ever stop the work of God in your life, that will ever stop him from showing you his love more fully, that will ever stop him from bringing you home. Not one little thing. All things work together for the good of those who love him. So this is true, but not usually in the way that we use it. God won't give us more than we can handle. Okay, I think Mother Teresa may have said this, and any time that someone way holier than you says something, you should probably slow down before totally throwing it out, but we're going to barrel right ahead. <laughs> I think sometimes people also say this, quoting 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, um, God will not give you more than you can handle. He will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. Okay, but are we going to be given more than we can handle in this life? Yes. We were not made for the world as it is. We were not made for a broken world. Our bodies were not made to handle grief and loss and death and pain. That's not what we were made for. So why would we be able to handle grief and loss and death and pain? That is the very reason that we need Jesus. That is the reason he came. Of course you will be given more than you can handle, way more than you can handle, all the time. That does not mean you will be given more than God himself can handle but you yourself will always be given more than you can handle because we weren't created to handle it. That is why we need Jesus. All right, and then he'll show you what he has for you. He'll make it clear. This one is also straight up false. He might, he might not. Think of Job. Job never had any idea why all the things happened to him that happened to him. God has no interest in telling us everything. You will not find a verse in the Bible that says, my goal for you is to make you as knowledgeable as possible. That is not his goal for us. His goal for us is that we be healed, that we be made whole. It is natural to ask God why things happen, and God welcomes that. He's very clear about that in Scripture. But clarity is not a prerequisite for trusting God. So how? How do we force ourselves to believe in times of transition or blindness that God is already working, that he works in impossible situations and in totally unpredictable ways? 
If trust is not something that just oozes out of us so easily, how do we get it? Know first that trusting him does not feel super awesome. It feels more like being stretched in a million unpredictable and uncomfortable ways and choosing to remember in the midst of that that you are not out of his palm. If you are seeking a feeling, you are seeking the wrong thing. There is no one set way of learning to trust. This is why we all have different stories in our lives and why God works in different ways in each of our past and each of our stories. But it is something that is learned. My mom has said to me before, trust is like a muscle. And actually, I said that back to her last spring. Mom, one time someone said to me, trust is like a muscle. And she said, I did. I said that to you. (laughs) It's like telling the joke back to the person who originally told it to you. But trust is like a muscle. And the more you exercise it, or really that God exercises it in you, the stronger it becomes. And the more you lean into him and depend on him and surrender to him and see him work in your life and in others, the more you know you can lean into him and depend on him and surrender in your life. Yours is not the first life he has meddled in. If you read through his scriptures and look at the many ways he has proved himself over and over, you will see God has never reneged on a promise. He works out his promises behind the scenes before we know he's working in impossible situations and in unpredictable ways, but he always comes through. He promised Adam and Eve that he would provide a savior for the world, and he has. He promised Abraham that the savior would come through his and Sarah's old, ragged bodies, and their son did come. He promised the people of Israel that he would never forsake them, and he sought them out and brought them back to himself from Egypt, from idols, from Babylon, and from the ends of the earth. He has protected his people in impossible situations again and again. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, David against Goliath, Esther in the courts of the Persian king, the small army of Gideon, which was 300 people against thousands, and his disciples in a raging storm. He said he would rise from the dead, conquer death and sin, and make a people for himself, and he has. Will he not also work in our lives, as he has promised to do, and safely bring us home. Does he not see us as he saw the Israelites in Egypt and hear our groaning? And just because we don't see how he's working now, and all we see are difficult and painful and impossible situations, does he not amazingly do his most glorious and awe-inspiring work in those very times? Our God is trustworthy, but not because we can control him and not because we can predict what he will do. He is trustworthy because he is not any of those things. He is trustworthy because he is not like us. And thank God that he is not. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who fits into what we think you should be. We thank you that you are a God who instead sees everything in our lives and you know what you're doing and you never leave us and you never forsake us. You never go back on a promise and you have promised us many, many good things. I pray for each person here that no matter the situation in their life that you would remind them of who you are 
that you work long before we even think to ask, that you work in impossible situations, and that you work in totally unpredictable ways. I ask that you would drive this home to our hearts and that we would remember that this is who you are and that this would be what we lean on and that we fall back on when we are scared, when we can't see the future. I pray that you would work in us trust to build a big muscle. And it is in your name I pray these things. Amen. Oh, you're dismissed.